Welcome to There Will Be Brunch. The movie podcast with conversations you wish you were having. And food you wish you were eating. All right, we have a special guest today, don't we, Head Chef Kev? Yes, uh, we do. Um, <laughs> we have uh, a guest joining us today. It's uh, uh, it's There Will Be Brunch history. We're history in the I, making. Yeah, this is unprecedented. We've never done this before. But we wanted to cover a Wes Anderson film today, so we called in a, a resident Wes Anderson expert and coffee aficionado, uh, the best of both worlds. So uh, Samuel Jackson Hayes the fourth. Nice. Um, is, is that your real? Is that? Samuel so Jackson Hayes III is actually my father, so I am. Nice. <laughs> That's impressive. Why don't you um, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, give uh, us your credentials. What are your credentials Kevin, to Kevin, be Kevin, 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 Kevin. <laughs> well, I uh, just a just a small town man. <laughs> Grown up in a Air Force town and uh, came off to big city for college. Uh, this is it sounds, it's more, that's it more sounds biographical information, cheesy, but it's all true. It's more biographical information than anyone around this table has ever given before. We are <laughs> we are basically just voices in someone's head to that's true. the casual listener. So, so I, um, where do you go to college? I go to college on Sanford University's campus in Birmingham, Alabama. Nice. Uh, currently a student in their Masters of Divinity program at Beeson, and I graduate in less than a month. So, wow. exciting time. But you're going to have a master's degree. A master's. You're officially more qualified than every single person at this table. Every person. Well, I don't know about that. We're all, I don't um, know why Spencer looked directly at me when he said that. I looked that. at Kevin. <laughs> I looked right at Kevin. I want it on record. Because I was thinking about <laughs> I was thinking about Kevin and how he'll be um, he'll be shortly joining the, the grad student world. I will, yes. Um, I'm still working on my associates in, uh, in uh, uh, typo. Just to make it about you, right? <laughs> my associates in... Um, uh, what do they call typing? Like stenography. My associate's degree in stenography. Typing. <laughs> so um, we are having a lumberjackian themed breakfast this morning, or er, not a brunch. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, we've got some apple strudel pancakes, uh, some sausage, some cheese grits, and Sam, uh, being the coffee expert, brought us. Tell us about uh, yeah. your the specialty coffee blends that you brought. There are two coffees. It's super fancy. Absolutely. There are two coffees. The first one we, we've been drinking on is from Burundi, Africa. It's a small little country in the middle of Africa. They call it the heart of Africa. It's a very good coffee. Uh, don't know exactly how else to describe it. <laughs> we gassed it up in, a little. In the coffee world, well, I, I, I don't want to sound like a pretentious No, ass. that's the point of this whole so, show. We're, we're that's here because we all sound like pretentious That's the shtick. Is there an official word for like a coffee connoisseur or coffee person who like does what you're kind of doing and analyzing coffee? If there is, I'm unaware of the term. Nice. I'm sure there is. <laughs> Are there like like there's world renowned wine tasters who can taste a wine and tell you like the year so and everything? Yeah. So like if that does that exist for for coffee? Surely it, it does. There, there are people that can taste. Oh, don't call me Shirley. I bet in Europe. You're so predictable, Kevin. I, I am. Pretty predictable. <laughs> there, there are people who can taste a random coffee and tell you not only what country it came wow. from, but what farm it came from in that. Well, country. There's people who can do that, but like, is that a profession that you could pursue? Oh, I'm sure. Like, could you be like a? I don't know. I don't know if you'd be rich from doing yeah. that. Yeah. Are Somalis rich? I don't think. Like, do they? Have an income? They're mostly work at restaurants, right? Like they're kind of, uh, they work at really I nice. I think they might make a lot of money. Uh, like because a, it's a very, like an, it's a very niche kind that's of. True, that's true. That's true. That's true. They're, I mean, they're they're ice cream tasters. 
as well. Like that's a oh, job. Good grief. That's some Ooh, I want to do that. California nonsense is what that is. <laughs> I'm not afraid to call that what it is. So moving into our movie discussion, um, we are doing the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is I uh, I was unfamiliar sort of with a lot of Wes Anderson stuff. I had seen the Royal Tannenbaums a million years ago. I saw this movie summer of of almost a year ago. It's been almost a year since I've seen this movie, and I remember walking out of it and just thinking, that's exactly what I want in a movie. It provided me with every um, every kind of experience that I want to have. In a movie, my criterion for a good movie is, do I get swept away? And do I get, like, do I lose myself? Do I feel mm-hmm. like this is, do I feel transported? And Wes Anderson did that really well for me personally in Grand Budapest Hotel. And I remember not, I didn't know anything about it going in. It was just something that I literally only knew the name. I think I'd seen the poster. And those have been some of the most, those types of movie going experiences have been some of the most rewarding of my life. Just going in, knowing nothing um, and being surprised, coming in without any expectations and having them uh, just blown out of the water. So that's, I don't want to ra- wax rhapsodic too much about this movie, but I was really impressed going into it knowing nothing and uh, not really having seen that many Wes Anderson movies. So we, how did how did y'all uh, come across this? Did you, everyone see it in the theaters? I did. Yeah. I actually drove down to Auburn from Birmingham oh, to wow. see it because there there wasn't a theater closer than that playing it and uh, I just remember thinking that it was particularly dark for a Wes Anderson movie but it, it only struck me like that because I was watching it at the moment I go back to some of these other movies he's done and I see incredibly dark things uh, in, in other movies but that's, that's what stuck, stuck out to me the first time I saw it was how dark it was yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw it about a year ago as well, um, and it's actually playing here um, in the Cobb in Tuscaloosa, which, yeah, they don't get really a whole lot of those kind was of limited, limited release. release? Yeah. It was. Well, it, okay. And then, like, after the first weekend, it did so well. Like, it had didn't it have, like, the best premiere of any Wes Anderson flick? That wouldn't I, surprise me at all. I think it did. And I so after it, that, it got a wider release, but still not, like, full nationwide. Um, but I saw it, and I remember... I, I really loved it. I thought it was great. And I hadn't seen every Wes Anderson movie by that point. Um, when I saw Moonrise Kingdom, that's when I really fell in love with Anderson, the auteur, and I went back and started watching all his stuff. Um, but it, it's it's definitely my favorite of his works. Um, my experience was you know. very different. Yeah. In that, um, I saw Moonrise Kingdom. That was, I think, no, that was the second Wes Anderson movie I'd ever seen. I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I enjoyed that. Um, thought it was a little quirky and weird as Wes Anderson films are and then I saw Moonrise Kingdom because it was built up to be my by my family and um, I hated it so much what you, okay <laughs> what's the premise of Moonrise Kingdom I've seen that like I am I'm not a fan of movies involving children um, as main characters <laughs> I'll be really the worst that's yeah, kind I'm of why I didn't like it was because it was about these young children and they feel each other up and it's weird and it makes me uncomfortable <laughs> but wasn't it so I, authentic <laughs> The awkwardness. I, I, I thought see, it was. I don't. I, it's also. I don't really like children. At They're going to get bigger. The, the, the I way think. that the way that that um, actors are in Wes Anderson movies is very oh, deadpan. It's, it's weird. It's almost creepy. Like if I met somebody that talked like the people in a Wes Anderson film, I would be creeped out by them. <laughs> and to see like children doing that kind of acting, I thought it was weird, and I, it didn't like feel right to me. But. I thought I'll give okay. Wes Anderson another chance. Was, was Tilda so. Swinton in that one too? Yes. Tilda Swinton. Was, I, I'm all I knew is that she was going to be in this movie. That was like the only person who was in it, and I was <laughs> excited. I'll see anything Tilda Swinton's in. 
anything. And then after the first five minutes, you were sorely disappointed. Yeah. Yes. I was, I actually really was. She, she died. <laughs> That's my, my favorite part is when, when she's sitting at the table with Gustav H., and she's like saying, he's like, come with me. And then he's oh, like, oh, what is this, what is this <laughs> horrible garnish on your, on your fingers? And he goes, Oh, you don't, you don't like it? He's like, no, it's not that I don't like it. It's that it's physically repulsing me. And then later <laughs> picks up her hand in her coffin and is like, oh, you, oh, you changed, changed the awful <laughs> color. It looks I don't know what but, cream um, to put, put in the morgue, but I want some. <laughs> <laughs> you look better than you've looked in years. You look alive. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, the cool thing about, th- another thing uh, uh, that I was really getting a lot of enjoyment out of was the art direction of this movie is it like in all Wes Anderson oh. movies impeccable oh. but where, specifically where it concerns um, the um, the Madame D character the uh, mm-hmm. she's dressed in exactly the same way as like a Gustav Klimt paintings characters from Gustav Klimt paintings she has like clothing that is literally like the the funeral garment she's wearing is taken right out of the kiss it's just rendered in white um, she wears other Klimt-esque uh, stuff and it's really cool because then later whenever he goes to Chateau Lutz um, or Schloss Lutz sorry where she lives you see a ton of Klimt's in her house there are like a ton of um, and they're all really kind of out of the way they're like propped up against bookcases and like in that one room where Boy with Apple is hanging another theme of this what we kind of uh, I never even think about but art is like a huge theme in West End like the, the nature of um like, what does art mean? How how do we value art? How do we look at art? And I think that he, in the same way that he takes an approach to violence, I think that he takes a really winking approach to um, to art and how it translates onto screen, in my, in my opinion. Speaking of production design, something that you may not know about the film, um, the hotel is actually, they were searching in Europe mm-hmm. for a hotel that could represent this sort of like very symmetrical, beautiful Grand Budapest Hotel, and they couldn't find anything that really matched what they were trying to do. It's hard. Were but they having trouble with space? With like space, just the... but like just finding something that they they felt was right, you know. Yeah. But they found a mall, an abandoned <laughs> mall, <laughs> an and they took store, right? an yeah. abandoned yeah department, department store, store, and they yeah, built this hotel. And they built it out of it. They rendered it because they, they, they do. Multiple times. Yeah, they, there's a cool in the in the movie. There's this really elaborate framing device where you get like the story within the story within the story and you see the Grand Budapest Hotel as it exists in like the 60s and also um, as it exists in like the 30s in the the mid 30s so you get these two really starkly different and they had to do the they had to do the interior of the they did they had to totally redo the interior of that department store where was it it was in Eastern Europe wasn't it I think it was actually yeah it was Um, in Europe they definitely the locations in there are gorgeous and even the ones that are rendered in uh, like with uh, matte paintings even those look really cool now that's so funny now that you bring it up like I'm picturing the inside of the hotel in my mind and I can definitely see structurally how that could have been it's <laughs> it's, it absolutely was that's bizarre and, and of course the outside is just like a miniature model mm-hmm. um which is really cool. I love the brief uses of stop animation and whatnot. Is it stop motion animation? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, yeah. I think it's puppets. With so like yeah. the oh, yeah, and the the painted backgrounds, Art which are sort of throwbacks to like the old classic era Hollywood nineteen thirties movies, which is of course the time this is set in. Yeah. Uh, so I think that works really well. Yeah, it really, they're, they're yeah. gorgeous. They look, and I I didn't think it took away from. I wonder if some people it kind of interrupted that because we're so used to these. These ultra sleek, very stylized, modern depictions of yeah. scenery and yeah, background. it was sort of jarring the first it time I jarring. saw it. Like that is 
This is clearly like a painting. They weren't even um, trying. Well, it's like it an, everything's bright. like an illustration. Mm-hmm. It's twee. Yeah. It's twee. Ah. Tell us what twee, twee. is. Transition. T-W-E-E. It's a word that is very often used to describe this film, and I guess a lot of Wes Anderson films. It's something that's like overly quaint and sentimental, and it's very... It's usually used in like a negative connotation, though. Yeah, almost all. I mean, like it yeah. has a negative... I think it has a negative connotation. Yeah. Sort of like how a lot of stuff today is criticized for being like intentionally constructedly quirky yeah that's exactly um, that it's not what, yeah. genuine um but it's sort of a phony act i like how, like how quirky tweet. i am yeah so that, that feels in the similar vein yeah but that's what a lot um, of critics have, have said about this movie strangely the reception has been kind of widely spread i mean for the most part it's gotten very positive reviews but some people really hate i think anytime film. a movie gets a lot of positive reviews that prompts certain types of critics to oh well let to be me, more critical let me criticize yeah. this beloved of across the board it's film like, people like it it's the same <laughs> thing with birdman it um, must be awful yeah if the masses like <laughs> it it must be that that reminds me the one uh film that i saw on rotten tomatoes that almost had i think it had almost 100 percent. it might have actually had 100 percent, but one person a critic named Armand White Critic <laughs> calling him out. Yes, I don't think <laughs> coming, for you, coming for you, Armand. Because okay, all of his reviews are negative. By the way, Armand White, he wrote a review that pretty much said um, this movie is all about commercialism, and I hate it so much. The movie, Toy Story Three. <laughs> oh Jesus! Is it like that's the. Okay. Calling out Toy Story 3. Armand got, White. Armand White's got a lot of really Look, good headshots Universally, across the board, the most one of uh, the most beloved films ever made. He yeah. says, Everybody loves Toy Story 3. Armand White uh, Sam's uh, pointing a finger at Googling him, him you, just, you get New York-based film and music critic known for his provocative and idiosyncratic film criticism. That means unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> that means... It's because all, all of his critics... Like, I hated it. I was looking. <laughs> it's funny. I feel like he's a satirical. Like it's it's like his criticism is satire because he gives the worst reviews to the best movies, and all the there are some oh, awful Lordy movies Jesus. that he gives like rave. That's reviews. the thing. That's the thing is that whenever, whenever Insidious Three, it was a beautiful examination of the. Are you serious? You no, not that? like that. But there was one film. <laughs> okay, I was about to be like, that's dark. Can I take us on a tangent for yes. just a second? Yes. Oh, because. Um, <laughs> We don't do that on this we podcast. We don't do tickets, actually. If we can okay. I know where the door is. Wrangle it back <laughs> in. Please. my way out. Okay, so every time someone brings up Toy Story, I, I, just, I feel compelled to ask what everyone's favorite of the three is. Two. Absolutely. I two. love two. I, and I don't like... I come from a household where we had a strict... Huh. We had, like, not a strict... We, we um, My parents' opinions and my opinions on the Toy Story movies are the same. Uh... The first one There's is not that great. There's only one school of thought allowed yes. in this household <laughs> yes. when it comes to yes. the Toy Story. And I know I can quote every line of Toy Story 2. My, I I don't like Toy Story 1 that much. I think that Toy Story 2 is the perfection of the movie. I think like, a, not the perfection of the movie, I, but I think that like take the concept and do something really, um, and I don't, I'm not about like the, it's not a movie for me, but I still love it. Like they're so, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a, I was a child when it came out. I'm I love Pixar in general. I, I love uh, I love all animated yeah. movies. Um, so uh, I like all of the Toy Story films, and I think they got I was increasingly in a better. Pixar household. Just yeah. to clarify, I, I think it. the the third is the best. The second, the second best. I think each one improves upon the other. So hmm. I have I like hope, the Cars uh, series. Yeah. I have high hope for <laughs> I have high hope for Toy Story four. No, is that actually you happening? shouldn't. 
No, I mean I don't know. I, mean, I feel like they're gonna do it into the ground. They're gonna they said well, they've claimed that they're not. It's not like a continuation of the trilogy. The first That's three not are reassuring sort of thing, <laughs> and then the fourth one's gonna be something completely. They're calling Toy Story Four is um, g- uh, generically speaking um, a romantic comedy. The folks at Pixar have declared. Okay, Pixar. You, <laughs> Pixar is, is, is uh, skating on tiny ice, or, as far as I'm concerned. I've never seen Lasseter do something I didn't like. That's true. That's true. So, what, what other what, um, what other Pixar movies is he responsible for? Oh, gosh. The first Cars. Okay. Which is my so least... I respect it, but it's my least favorite. It's one of my least favorite. That and Bug's Life. I'm Bugs like, man, I could that. do without Bug's Life. I like Bug's Life. I like <laughs> Bug's Life. What about, what about you for to- Toy Story? My favorite Toy Story film? Yeah. Finding Nemo, absolutely. Toy it's Story film. Oh, film. Not, what are we talking about? Toy Story. <laughs> I'm a little distracted. I'm trying to find... <laughs> my favorite Toy Story film. Scream 4. I hate them. I hate them. <laughs> Nemo. I'm talking about Pixar films. Jenner's face is real red right now, y'all. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually looking for Armin White's review of Toy Story 3. Oh, we're still Lord on Armin White's. I'm, I've still got his, uh, what are we talking about? his Wikipedia poll. What was your question? Of the three Toy Stories, one, two, and I three. I honestly have no idea. I liked the third one. I yeah. don't even remember the second one. And well, like, for me, Jesse, Jesse, the yodeling cowgirl. Oh, and her backstory. From the role so in Osage sad. Hills. Yeah, it's so, a, it is sad. vaguely remember. <laughs> I, I only ask because this is probably the biggest disagreement that I have with my wife. <laughs> oh my god, I this, this is the biggest, uh, like, you've got a, a master's degree and you're married. <laughs> Not married. Everyone else this in this is... room is a charlatan. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is I like... live in a dorm. <laughs> The biggest point of tension in our marriage is, is over the Toy Story trilogy. So I mean, if you th- if you really think about it, we got a pretty good marriage. That's right? true. What is wait? What's her opinion? Well, I, I feel bad that I asked now because her favorite has been two, and that's I not, love two. And now and now you give her ammo, hey, and now I know. Well, here's, here's what I'll I'm say so about angry. I brought like, it up. Like, Which one is your favorite again? My favorite is really close between one and three for me. That's the exact same thing I think. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I have the same exact feeling. You so much. <laughs> Let me tell you. I will explain to you why. Why for me? I appreciate that. This is um. I like I said. This is what the. This is the um. Oh, it's not a litany. This is the catechism that uh, we learned about the Toy Story. Is that my mom? My mom always said she's like the first one is creepy. She's like the first one with that Sid kid. It's creepy. The second one. Like the the storyline is flawless. The storyline is flawless. It's that's not the that's not part oh of the goodness. Toy Story catalog. You know the reason why Pixar their first movie was about toys is because they were working on computer animation and they couldn't do field. people. They couldn't do people. They all looked plastic. So they said, "We'll just make it about toys." That's really cool. I didn't. I know. I saw Toy Story two was one of the. Oh, does what year did it come out? Does anyone remember? It was like two thousand nineteen ninety nine. I, I think earlier. Toy Story one earlier than earlier. that. No, Toy Story two. When was Toy Story two? Was is in the late. Yeah. Do you have an Ar- Do you have Armand White? I do have Armand okay. White's. I have. Um, Armand stay White. tuned for more about the Grand Budapest Hotel after <laughs> after these messages. This is my fault. Okay, I apologize. So Armand White's. I have Armand White's review of Toy Story three and Grown Ups. The Adam <laughs> Yeah, I'm about to. Like, I'm about to roll up out of here. Toy Story 3's his review is 
It's got 99%. It's, Toy Story 3 is so besotted with brand names and product placement that it stops being about the innocent pleasures of imagination, the usefulness of toys, and strictly celebrates consumerism. <laughs> you gotta watch out together? for the consumerism. Do they all get It'll together get and like join a circle around like, or join hands uh, in a circle around like a bust of Adam Smith? And talk about the glories of like the wealth of nations because I would buy that if that happened in Toy Story. Then three would be my favorite if they did that. If it was about if three was about capitalism, I'd be on board. This was actually better than Jonah Hex. Are you guys familiar with? Yes, this film? it's horrible. It was crap. I didn't Armand even White's it. review. Go to hell, Armand White. It, <laughs> it reexamines assumptions of good and evil, morality tale versus trite, entertain entertainment by confronting high art, low art, by tragedy. <laughs> Comedy, beauty. <laughs> By confronting the hideous compromises people make with social conventions and their own desperation. It's own social conventions. You'll get you every that time. His review. Megan, Megan Fox is in just like a like a bustier and panties throughout the whole movie. That's why he likes it. And he's, he's trying to say he's trying to say that it's about. What now? An examination of good and evil, <laughs> good and evil morality tale versus trite oh entertainment. Lord, y'all, we we can't rip on Armand. Let's let's close out the discussion on Mr. White by saying on his Wikipedia uh, on his Wikipedia page <laughs> there is a tab called Style and Personal Taste where it says White, who describes himself as a pedigreed film scholar. All I have to say to that is a quote. From Game of Thrones, which is uh, Tywin Lannister says, "A man who has to say he is king is no king." That's all I have to say, Mister Mister White. If you've got to say you're a pedigreed film scholar, talking about Boom. that's contrary. That concludes this know, segment right? of. He's gonna hear this and quit. Taking a Meanwhile. shit on Armand White. No. Thank you um, for listening. The official position of this podcast: we do not what support. You don't understand. Although that you can't say your pedigree. Do we do we have opinions on the war? What? I mean, I'm just thinking I'm about the official <laughs> the official positions of this podcast are obviously against Armand White, but do we have some like, any um, other hot button issues yeah. that we'd like? <laughs> Speaking of war, Grand ah, Budapest, oh, there GBH. Is. There's the connection. Um, what are we? What's uh, what are some other thoughts that y'all had kind of initially on watching it or? Did you guys, so I, I know we already talked about the first time watching it. Was there a second viewing that you kind of re-examined your, because you said it, you thought well, it was Sam, super Sam here brought a fancy leather-bound notebook Ooh. with some, some handwritten notes that he had. I so I'd, I'm interested to see what, what you wrote down. You defer, Kevin. I defer, yeah. I yield my time. I'm buying myself time to think of a smarter way to say what's in my head. A smarter way to say what is in Kevin's head, everybody. Kevin and I, in addition to being unmarried, uh, no degrees yet, living in dorms, we're also illiterate. Yes. As long as, I mean, I am too, you know, so... Taylor can sign with an X. I can. What, what are your opinions? Yeah, let's, let's hear it. You so, got your book. Grand Budapest Hotel, for me, is, I think, just a, a classic story about longing. And I, what I have written down here is a quote from Evelyn Underhill. Uh, and for me, you know, as someone who is going to school studying theology, uh, I, I can't, I can't separate like the the sacred and the secular. Like everything is this weird mix of of life, and and death, and there's everything in between. Uh, but this is what Evelyn Underhill has to say. It says three deep cravings of the self, three great expressions of the restlessness of man, which only mystic truth can 
fully satisfy. Says the first is this craving which makes him a pilgrim and a wanderer, looking for a better country, a better world, an Eldorado or a heavenly scion. The second craving, the second longing, is is the craving of heart for heart. It's the craving of the soul for its perfect mate, for its perfect mate, which makes man a lover. And the third is the craving for an inward purity and perfection, which makes him an ascetic, and in the final resort, a saint. Cool, cool. And I love that because I think this really captures what Grand Budapest Hotel is about. These these longings that you see Zero has, and the, these longings that you see Gustav has, of looking for. Uh, just to satisfy these longings, to satisfy uh, the longing for a place. Zero, I mean, he's a refugee, right? <laughs> he's right, looking yeah. for a better country. That is actually one of my favorite parts when he talks about the, he's like, oh, the, uh, tortured by the rebel militia for however long. <laughs> so mum's the word. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you know the drill. Zip it. <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, Zero's looking for this, this better country. He really is, in every sense, a pilgrim and wanderer. And he finds it. He finds it in the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's why he trades his vast fortune yeah. to own this place. Um, and then for love, I mean, you see Gustav. In the very beginning, you have this this weird montage of, of some of his relations. That was <laughs> jarring. <laughs> I, mo- I just kept thinking, I was like, these are... Actresses weird. who are getting paid to do this. Good for the like. Good for good for good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Well, I wonder if. Um, do you think that Tilda Swinton agreed to be in any of those sex scenes? There's there's a montage of sex scenes. I feel like Tilda Swinton in her contract. I feel like she would like, insist upon it. If I feel like yeah, exactly. One. If y'all have not read the thing, there's like a, an article written by a woman who had her boyfriend stolen by Tilda Swinton. <laughs> he was an extra who was a centaur in um, the Chronicles of Narnia, and Tilda Swinton literally went on like a cross country. This girl's like, yeah, Tilda Swinton. I forget she's in those. Stole my boyfriend. Oh my god, she's the best part. I know. <laughs> Not Liam Neeson? As, no. Um, no. Hilda Swinton. Hilda Swinton. I think she might have him. Um, but so, and you were, what's the quote, the part of the quote that talks about the aesthetic portion as well? Like, what was that? Read that one more time. The aesthetic portion. Or the, the, like the aesthetic, the longing for the beauty. Yeah, the longing yeah. For, well, longing for this, 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 a place to fit in. Yeah. For this better country. Yeah. Uh, a heavenly scion or an Eldorado. Um, it's, it's just this, this wanting, uh, to, to fit in and, and and you see that in Gustav I mean we've already talked about mm-hmm. how he's kind of just this lonely character actually um, that was erased oh we haven't talked about that we haven't Gustav this is oh my, my original contribution to the discussion <laughs> then it's a lonely character we're drawing back the curtain behind the process of how this gets we act, we Sam, um, we have Sam, to shave Sam. down eight hours of uh, just raw audio eight hours of tangents yeah. That's how every podcast, every podcast lovingly crafted, shaved down from over eight hours of non-sequitorial tangents. There's actually a fourth member of our trio oh, who never is locked in my closet upstairs, and there's an extension cord that goes in, and he's just on a computer constantly, just shaving things down. Yeah, editing, live editing. The entire week after we record our episode is just constantly him shaving it down and he gives us two hours of stuff from like that's not good enough and then we, we whip him and him. take him out back <laughs> we, should, yeah. we should pay this person and then, we, and then we make him chop wood and make a fire and then nobody sits and like enjoys the fire and then he goes back up and finishes <laughs> and once he shaves it down to 45 
<laughs> we call him Sisyphus. This is, yes, we are. We employ because this podcast takes place in the underworld in the Grecian <laughs> under. That explains. That's we make the, him c- commit a sacrifice to the sun god Ra, and then long, it's all been a long term. Uh, it's no exit by Jean Paul Sartre. Where like hell is other people. That's the theme of this podcast. They're only brunch. Hell is other people. Sisyphus. <laughs> Um, okay, I we like stole the what were you, you were you were talking more about? Yeah, so so this Gustav is, is is just trying to comfort himself and other women. He's he's doing this, but but then that last longing for inward purity that that drives us to be an ascetic, which I don't think anyone in their right mind could describe Gustav as an ascetic. He he loves frivolity. It yeah, seems exactly. like uh, Wait, what uh, is the definition of an ascetic? Or an a, ascetic a d- denial of of. Like base pleasures, denial okay. of uh, those those kind of unnecessary. Because I thought I was always under the assumption that it was like the. I know there's like a. I thought it was the opposite. I thought aesthetics were. I actually don't know how to spell aesthetics. It. Oh, with a th. This is what sc. Okay. Asceticism. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So an, an Ooh, tripped up by. Ooh. I've been beaten at my own game, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Beaten at my own game. We have a true intellectual we do here, have a, unlike us. Exactly. We're faux intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the definition of it? Like, what is the definition of uh, the one with the without the th? Without the th. <laughs> What's the definition of the one without the th? Very succinctly put. <laughs> Uh, asceticism is is this self denial denial of base pleasures, uh, take only what you need and even maybe less than that. Yeah, it's I mean it's this kind of vow that monks take when they go out to the desert. Which is that's kind of what um, zero becomes in the yeah. living in that small room, yeah. even though he's in this you know giant kind of uh, grandiose building, choosing to live yeah. in that tiny room. I think is like that's right there. That's hitting the nail on the head in yeah. terms of asceticism. I think, I, think that, right. I think that also uh, plays into another theme within Grand Budapest, uh, and that's the theme of nostalgia and longing for times oh, past, yeah. um, which we see through the character of Gustav, who, of course, Zero describes at the end is, I think, uh, the time he was living in had passed well before yeah. he actually, came into the world. Which is, right that's now. so true. You feel that, like, the... And, and that's why I loved... For me, after exiting the theater, I was like, oh, that's what this is about. This is about that, which... I kind of have rethought that position, but I was like, it's about the, this turning period in European and Western culture where you see the disappearance of these things like the aristocracy. You see these disappearance of people like Gustav. I mean, hotels don't have concierges like that unless you're going to a, a hotel that's on par with the Grand Budapest. And even then, it's a relic. Like, those types of <laughs> positions and those types of relationships that um, that these wealthy patrons of these establishments would have had with those people are dis- in the same way that like Downton Abbey, though that world is disappearing, and Downton Abbey is all about the disappearance of this this European model of uh, living your life that kind of was evaporating at the turn of the century, and you yeah. get that literally the finality of that world with the um, the occupation, the um, the the stand-in Nazis in yeah, the you in see the it film very much yeah. in the trains. When their trains are stopped and the right. faux Nazis, mili- yeah, the faux Nazis, the enemy militias, they come in and they're wait- they're asking for papers, and he's like, "Oh, everything's fine. It's like we are high class. He's yeah. with me. It's all good." And they're like, "No, yeah. that's not how this works." Exactly. And he's like, "Look, 
It's like, I will have your supervisor, you know? And it's like, no, that's not how this and is going to work. the cool thing about, I mean... You I can see it collapse, like, his exactly. his kind of world that he he's trying to control things like, like he is in this old world, like this nostalgia, and you can see it kind of fading as the real world of, like, the situation he is in starts to set in, and Zero sees it, and that's probably when Zero's, like, knows this guy exactly. is just... And you get that dilapidation, or you get that sense of decline. I think it's all about this... Uh, not, it's not all about... I thought this movie was all about that decline in the life lived by these these people of this era. Um, but you see that in the, the representation of the hotel in the 60s, kind of under communist regimes. And you had said earlier, Tanner, that the color palette was chosen... Yes. Um, because for whatever reason, it reminded Wes Anderson of communism yeah, in, the, um, in, in the 1960s. In the 1960s scenes... Um, Olive and oranges, for some reason, Wes Anderson um, and... liked. He, he saw those as somewhat communist for some reason. I'm I think they're sure. also Maybe really it's because of the way that they fit together. They're very '60s colors too. They like are. they're very kind of like shag mm-hmm. carpet, and and you see the the way the hotel has transformed. It's, very, it's the color of the wallpaper on the author's room oh, in his office. That's too. true. That's true. Um, in and the outside of the hotel, it looks completely different in those times. It's, they've actually it's removed like stone. It looks almost. Well, they've like removed a the roof. Yeah. They've removed the roof, and I think that they, like in my mind, this is all justifying Wes Anderson's world building. But in my mind, the roof was probably some type of like metal or copper, or not copper, like some type of metal. Who the hell has a copper roof? Um, but they like would They're have coming you know, back. Spencer. They would have. <laughs> they would have like sold. Oh my god. They would have sold whatever the roof is actually the hotel is actually missing an entire story in the like I've looked at I might need to double check visually but the hotel is missing the upper story and it's like where did that go but I imagine them like selling off the the metal that made up the roof for like scraps or whatever. That's what I imagine. That, that's my headcanon for that world. Something interesting as well. Compelling. Like, go, go, <laughs> rich and compelling. Rich and compelling. <laughs> now we move on. <laughs> Hate y'all yard. <laughs> no, <clears throat> we're talking about this nostalgia. Um, in the film, uh, Wes Anderson kind of employs something that's a little more subtle, but also very connected with the way, like the time periods of the film is the aspect ratio that we actually see the film shot in. In the very beginning, the present day and so in the, funny about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was... In the in the beginning and in the eighties portion, we have an aspect ratio that is uh, um, I think like one eight seven, something like that. The it's one eight five, which is like the modern day aspect ratio for film. But then when we jump back to the sixties, they change it to a two three five aspect ratio, which was for the time period the aspect ratio mm-hmm. okay. they use. What, then, what, tell us what an aspect the, ratio is, because I ratio, actually don't know. It's yeah. just like the size of the screen, so if it's dimensions. Really a wide, okay, cool. width by wide screen, oh, okay. it's a ratio of like upwards one and then across 1.85. Okay, so cool. it's 1.85 times longer on like across than okay. it is up. So um, it changes because like he, for some reason, insisted on changing the aspect ratio with the time periods of the film, I guess, to add more nostalgia. Because when we jump back even further in 1930s, with Gustav H and Zero and they're younger, it's one three thir- one three seven one, which is like almost a square. Box, yeah. It gets a box. Really, it's the Academy I ratio. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I know. You get the black bars on the side mm-hmm. of the screen, exactly. the yeah. top and bottom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, in the '60s there are black bars on the top and bottom, and yeah. then the '30s there are black bars on the side, and it's just almost a square. 
it's really so cool. interesting like how they did that. This did you very, did you cool. notice that like as a filmmaker? Did you notice that when you first watched it? Did you I, see the difference, like the changes. I did the 1930s one, but okay. I didn't notice the present day to 60s okay. jump. I didn't notice that at all because it's such a I guess minuscule. It's really widescreen in the 60s. Yeah, you have black bars on top and bottom, but it's very noticeable when it's a square. And when watching that, I saw it in a theater when I was on spring break in San Francisco. So, and I think I did that. I was on spring break, and I knew that I couldn't see it in a theater in Alabama because it wasn't really here. It was limited release. Yeah, I mean, it would have been... I I mean, I saw it, like, back in Oklahoma. I saw it at, like, the big mall movie theater, and it must have been after it was out of limited release because it's hard to find a and limited release. it was release. so odd to watch this movie as, like, a square, not taking advantage of the majority yeah. of the screen mm-hmm. in front of you. And it's off-putting almost. It, it was so, yeah, I would agree. It's somewhat off-putting. Like I was, I was like, this is really curious. It's like really, mm-hmm. a, it's a very stylistic choice for a director to make to say, I'm going to just like cut down on showing certain yeah. things. Like the amount of stuff that he could fit in the frame. Like the the production design of all of his films is so, so vast, rich. It's yeah, rich. He's cutting out <laughs> his own production design in the film, but I mean, it works very well. I think. What did yeah. you guys think of like the production design of this film? The it's the symmetry. It's the... brilliant. I love. I mean, I conceptually, I love Wes Anderson as an auteur. I love that there is that there are filmmakers like that who have such a distinct style. You're always going to know when you're watching a Wes Anderson movie, and no one can do those things right. in the future without like referencing or making paying some kind of homage to Wes Anderson. And I. I love the production design. I thought it deserved to win. It won for Best Costumes, didn't it? It did. It um, won Best Costumes and Makeup and Production Design. It won pretty much all the production well, design awards. We've talked, so. we've talked a little bit about um, the sets and kind of the, the construction of those things. But for me, just the the colors were so... I love attention to color. Mm-hmm. I love whenever an, a filmmaker is making those conscious... Um, stylistic choices and we've talked a little bit about the communist colors in the 60s and in the 1930s everything is in kind of these really pastel shades of pink and there's it's like pink and white and um they wear the purple uniforms the purple uniforms it's also rich it feels the pale pinks like contrasting Mm -hmm. with like the rich red and dark it feels like uh tanner you were saying that people compared it to a wedding wedding cake cake. it's Um, very wedding it's it's pace it's like the it's like a um yeah, the, the bakery in the, or the, the patisserie, I guess, is the fancy French word for a pastry shop. Um, the, but the, the, ba- the Mendel's... Thanks, of, France. <laughs> I know, right? For real, though. Thanks, France. Um, the Mendel's, the, ba- the where, oh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, what's the, Agatha. Yeah. Agatha, um, where she works. How do you pronounce her name? Saoirse, I think. Or Saoirse. Or something. Let me Google. I have no idea. Billy Brunch. How do you say it? How do you say the game segment? How is it said? Alexandre Desplat. Is it okay? Is it Desplat or Desplat or who cares? For the we're talking about the the composer for the film, Alexandre Desplat, who won for best best original. We can even take it. I've actually had it muted the whole time. But like, there's a there's a a website that accompanies the movie that goes along with the fictional country that it takes place in the Republic of. Zabrowska. So if you guys want a quick crash course on the ins and outs of this non-existent Eastern European um, principality, Republic, about principality, this is a, can you, oh, this is a different, this is different music. But that's it's like a little I want to hear the yodeling is what I want to. Uh... No. <laughs> oh my God. Y'all are doing it well. Well, never mind. But, um, uh, Kevin, what we, we were talking about, oh, production design. In terms of, 
<laughs> <laughs> there it is. Kevin did I, was, I wasn't job. going to try because I know I can't do it. Oh, the yodeling. Four um, part harmony. Let's go. But the production We've tried that before. <laughs> Yeah, we, we have. We've attempted. We have. This used to be a musical podcast. There used to be musical segments. No longer. No, with um, when we I, made uh, Man of Constance, we were so, trying. Oh that. To, oh that too. Yeah, we were trying to like harmonize our humming and stuff. We're not trained musicians. No, I'm not. We're trained musician. Nor am I good at sound editing. I have no idea what I was doing. We tried. Uh, for the listeners, one time we tried to. Um, Kevin can play guitar. We tried to record Man of Constant Sorrow, our own version of Man of Constant Sorrow. I've never even heard the recording. That's something that if, if someone wants to pay us to hear that in the future, we'll totally fork it over. This is going to be God a lot of money, okay? Because <laughs> I am not letting that get out. Spencer, you've always maintained that you might run for president someday. That's true. I don't think you want this getting out. No, I, don't. I mean, on this whole podcast, if I ever run for public office, it's going to be the. Fr- I've literally I'm started take thinking you about down with this piece I've of audio. Started thinking about everything I say. I'm like, in the future, can I justify some of the things that I've said on this podcast? If you're a politician, you can justify anything. That's the truth. That's the God's honest truth. Um, as far as the production design yeah, goes, what are we talking about? Production design. Okay. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's twee. symmetrical. It's twee. Twee. Um, twee. Can we all say twee at the same time? Twee, twee at the same time. Oh my god. I misunderstood. What's that? Get oh. out. <laughs> I know where the door is. Have you guys ever seen the movie? Um, it's a mockumentary. It's called Drop Dead Gorgeous. No. It's re- it's about like a beauty a beauty pageant. Um, and there's one segment where all the girls have to create a hat that's representative of one of America's national monuments and one girl makes a America's largest <laughs> ball of yarn and she like ends up running off the stage she's like, <laughs> she's like I misunderstood the assignment she's like I, I misunderstood like w- runs off crying because she didn't really realize that America's largest ball of yarn is not necessarily a monument um, <laughs> Oh, that's good. More of an homage. Drop Dead Gorgeous is an amazing, yeah. is an amazing movie. If y'all haven't seen it, please watch it. Um, but so, as, as what Tanner, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Maison Sen, which is another French word. It was the first and only thing that I remember from Maison Sen. Maison Sen. The key to French is um, a clued understanding of what you're saying as much as possible. Make sure that no one can really make out what you're saying. So, mise-en-scene basically means, um, it means everything in the frame. I think the, it means placing on stage, or like putting on stage. It's funny that you say stage as well, because yeah. Wes Anderson's films are very much like theater productions. I never thought about that. I have, I have a friend. He's even said that he, he's considered doing What were you that, saying? Like creating. I have a friend who has this theory okay. that every one of Wes Anderson's movies since Rushmore is one of Max Fisher's plays. Okay. Really? That would I don't I don't ascribe to it. You don't but have, he, do you have any more but he like, has that theory. Is well, there like more evidence sort of connecting not at all. films? <laughs> it's totally unfair. It's a thought. <laughs> but that's something to chew on. They're so well, that that's very compelling. Bring this back to the discussion of like he's really consciously engaging these a uh, multi um, genre uh, a multidiscipline kind of approach to storytelling and he's like consciously engaging um, literary tropes and like the whole like the voiceover the narrator uh the fact that everything takes place in a book like we're all um you know we're shown that this is a book that a character an unnamed character is reading 
and that's the whole framing device for the for the Grand Budapest. But it is it, in in the um, the way they set up like the miniatures and the um, the matte paintings. It's like a stage. It's exactly like a, a theater stage. Even and that's the framing how... is like a stage as well. The way uh, I think Moonrise Kingdom is a great example of it. There's a scene where. It's almost like three different stages set up. It's like in their house. In yes. the very beginning, it's it's a shot looking at the kids, like I think playing or putting together a puzzle or something. And then the camera pans over and it's symmetrical on another part of the room. And then it pans over again to like the opposite side of the room with yeah. another person, like, uh, the, I think the main character taking a picture. Yeah. And it's very stage-like. Yeah. It's like, like three stages set together that just spin almost. It's very interesting the way that he also, they tell you in film school, like never put things in center frame. Why because is that? It's less aesthetically pleasing to the eye when things are like that um, symmetrical. It, it violates it, like the yeah, golden ratio, sort it's, of, it's or the like, it's like Fibonacci, you put them to the whatever. side because it's more visually interesting. You fit more things like to the side of the frame. Yeah. There, there, you know, there the rule of it's thirds. Like those composition or like the it's composition of those classical more, yeah. paintings where everything's everyone's like yeah. all dynamic and whatever. Compositionally, it just is more appealing to our eyes. But he specifically goes against that convention. And, I mean, he does it very well, but because, I mean, if you're going to go against a convention, I guess you're going to do go it well. full throttle, like, all the way, <laughs> completely, entirely against convention, everything center frame. Is that what, are there other directors who are doing that same thing consciously, who are placing, who are making those same decisions around centering the, because it's theatrical, it's so theatrical. I think a good, I, I read an article um, about Stanley Kubrick, who... Ah, there we go. People, <laughs> yeah, this is actually That's a good true. example. Uh, something that he did was, it was like one point um, was always... Perspective. Yeah, per, one point perspective. Yeah. It was every single shot is one point perspective. And once you realize that, like you see it. Yeah. But if you're not thinking about it, you're just thinking all, all these shots well, it, are strangely I mean, framed. like I said earlier, that kind of multi... I don't know if multidiscipline is the right word, but like he's engaging like art. He and, is. Um, and... Theater and I mean visual art, like visual art and theater and literature and all these things that are that are working so cohesively together. And I think he does it. Like, the reason he's able to get away, and like you, they say, never to do that. The reason he's able to get away with doing that stuff is because he does it so well, and he creates um, he creates such a compelling a compelling world. And that kind of uh, if we haven't talked about it before, the whole the whole of Grand Budapest Hotel takes place in a fictional Eastern European country and I didn't realize that upon watching it the first time I thought that it was just like unnamed I didn't realize I, I wasn't hearing the name of the country and like I needed to see it spelled out for me I needed to see everything written out for me um, and the Republic of Zabrowska is is personally one of my favorite cinematic or literary kind of fictional creations I think it's really uh, it's it's a fun satire. It's a fun, skillful satire of those types of European, of like kind of obscure European countries. And he's able to, and in, in doing that, he's able to engage things like the the Van Hoytel painting, which is a um, the boy with apple, which is reference. Oh my gosh, I forget what artist is actually is like kind of mimicking or mocking. But there's a ton of that cultural weirdness that he's able to let f uh, fill out the story and this world that he's created for for Grand Budapest Hotel and that was one of my favorite parts and that's what attracts me so much to it is the purely constructed universe or the, the purely constructed universe that he presents us with uh, in the movie which is really a development from I mean you can see it throughout his whole filmography the the worlds he builds and and what he does with the Royal Tenenbaums mm -hmm. with the, with the children and their Elaborate stories about, I mean, kids running businesses, yeah. and writing plays, and 
which even might even be a development from uh, Rushmore. We accept well, both the character, young children characters in both of those movies are right plays and uh, Wes Anderson himself while he was still in school wrote and staged his own plays. He went to did he go to UT? He did. Yeah. Okay. He did. And, and that's, why, that's why Owen Wilson and like Luke Wilson were in all his films because they also went to UT Austin and so they kind of filmed, I mean, they kind of formed some sort of like cohesive group and they he kind of like shoots with the same people yeah. as a result. I think that what you're saying about... Like, you're the one who has to make it big and once that happens, then like... The rest of us got right. it made. Yeah. Only one of us yeah. has got to... To make uh, it. It's all on yeah. you, Tanner. Um, I expect uh, cameos in every movie you make. I expect a cameo. I would like to play a, a witch. No, I'd like to play. I'd like to play um, people who don't look like me at all. I'd like to play like uh, like white ladies. I feel like I don't want to play a lot of white ladies. Maybe like. Um, non-human characters, like animal I characters. I can see that. Okay. Just, can you can you write me a part for uh, like as a horse jockey? Yeah. I've always had this. <laughs> I've always had this dream of being His a horse dream jockey. Of being a horse you, jockey has always been. He's six eight and he wants to be yeah, a horse the, jockey. I, 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 whenever I met Sam, I was like, finally got some normal sized people around here. Yeah. Listeners, he literally is six eight. I am I, six. Four. It's not a figure. Yeah. It's not a figurative six eight. You would so. just play. You would, I think you'd be more horse. fit to play the horse. <laughs> you would kill a horse. Whoa. You'd run a horse. Is why is that not like a, a genre of horse racing, like a branch of horse racing? It's like big draft horses carrying just men who are huge and will eventually cause the horses hearts to give out at the end of the race. I think it would attract a weird uh, fan base. That's very true. That's it very true. It might turn That's into some true. sort of fetish. Fetish. Uh, uh, cut. Big man, little horse. Oh. <laughs> this got so dark. And cut. Um, so we got running it. for Shut president in twenty thirty five. That's a wrap on big man, little horse. <laughs> oh my god. Moving on. Oh my god. Um, but as far as world, I think that what you're talking about the development in his skill and world building is evident. It was evident for me because. Grand Budapest is such an epic movie. In the the rest of his movies are are kind of consciously domestic, and this one has this kind of grand um, World War II global storyline that I I I thought was like one of his kind of crowning achievements in being able to do what he likes to do best. Wow, we've talked about a lot yeah. today. In terms yeah. of Wes Anderson, Sam, Grand Budapest Hotel. I want to. I want to ask you, like you, you know, you you would ask Kevin to kind of come on because you love Wes Anderson. What is it about Wes Anderson that that makes him that makes him your guy for like for movies? What is it about him? Is he your guy? Uh, he's, you say that he he's, is like your your favorite. Director? I would say I would say my three favorite directors that are are still doing things would be uh, Wes Anderson, Coen Brothers, and um, Quentin Tarantino. It's well, the exact same thing. Sounds so like uh, exact sounds same familiar. For me. And so, sounds like yeah. people we've discussed. Uh, so, so is he my guy? You know, in my dreams, maybe. <laughs> um, what? I don't even know what he looks like. His wet, wet dreams. <laughs> His wet, wet dreams. His wet, wet dreams. What does Wes Anderson look like? Is he like? He's got long hair. Oh, I've her. seen him. He looks very like twee. He looks twee. <laughs> Um, he, looks, he looks like a character in his own movies. He, he looks like, like a character a in his own movies. Which is a shame he doesn't have any cameos. He wears a trench <laughs> like coat. Why doesn't he have cameos? Oh, I, don't know, I, I really like Wes Anderson because of 
uh, just the whimsy in all of his films mm-hmm. that that is kind of just this artifice exactly. that covers these truly tragic stories. Yeah, and and you know I. When I think of good books or good literature or good films, good anything, I think of something that doesn't ignore like the pain in the world, but also doesn't stop there, but, yeah. but keeps going and shows you that there still is hope. And I think Wes Anderson really captures that. He breaks down that, that barrier between the, the secular and the sacred in, in such a way that just really draws me in and speaks to me. Is the sacred, for you, is the sacred that sadness? Is the sacred like that kind of inherent sort of tragedy in our lives like is that is it the... no no okay. that that would be the the secular so, so, for okay. me. The, the sacred for me is is seeing that there's hope beyond that okay you know, and as someone who studies theology I mean I would go in a completely another direction with this conversation but uh, the the sacred for me is is not ignoring uh, that hope which I think if I can just have a rant on go for it Christian culture right now the, the Christian music is just the worst music out there right now because it completely... You said it. This is because, not the official view of the Early Brunch podcast. Look, I, I study this it. stuff. I can okay. say it. <laughs> no, it, it just, for the most part, not all artists do this, but not artists. Whoa. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots no, fired. I, I Armin think... White and Christian musician. Watch out. Yeah, for real. No, I, I think there's just a lot of ignoring pain. You know, when I, when I go to a, a church service... Not in Catholicism. Not in Catholicism. <laughs> no, we got that on lock. We're all about, like, the sad and the things. <laughs> Our Lady of Sorrows. For real, though. Perpetual uh, sorrow. Perpetual I'll thank sorrow. you to remember. Yeah. I was talking about a church in no, Birmingham, that's but that's fine with... You know. <laughs> no, I, I think they just ignore uh, pain. You know, there's a, a whole story in the Bible about Job that's just pain, pain, pain this whole time mm. until the very end when there's this hope. And and so I, I, when I think of a good movie, I think of something that does not ignore that pain, that shows you that pain, uh, but then still gives you hope in yeah. the midst of it. And I think Wes Anderson does that. I think he accomplishes that very well. What is, yeah. what is so in, bittersweet. It is bittersweet. Yeah. In Grand Budapest, and I think that the, the, the sweet is like the the on-the-surface kind of frivolity of the way the movie looks. But what is the, for you, what is the hope in, in Grand Budapest? Like, let's, I guess we can kind of close out on what's the hope for you in the end of that movie? I think part of it is Gustav's character. Okay. As, as strange as that might might sound. I mean, he's this completely self-absorbed character from yeah. the, for the entire movie. Uh, but you kind of start to see that change after he has this conversation with Zero about Zero's leaving his country as a refugee. Yeah. And and in the end, why does Gustav why does Gustav die? Because he's standing up for for zero, and he gets shot over it. Wow, you know, and I, I think you see that, and then you see um, zero able to live at least a, a part of his life with Agatha, uh, but then he still he's he's found this better country that he's looking for in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, and he's traded his his vast fortune just to to keep that. As like, a, hope. as like, I mean, when I watch any kind of romantic thing, I think that I, I'm a sucker for like the, um, not necessarily the unrequited love, but the love that is brief, like the, mm-hmm. the love that like someone dies or something, or like people are separated. I think there's, I was attracted towards that in Grand Budapest. And I think the scene where you see the tears streaming down, um, oh, I don't remember the actor's name, the old, old F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham's face. I was just like, that's, um... It hit me. It hit me yeah. in a way that uh, the rest of it kind of didn't. We're done. We All right. We Are we ready to go into our, our game segment game to close oh, out? Oh, nice. Yes. Well, who, who's, is it your idea? Do you want to explain it? 
Okay, we're we're um. Well, what did we decide? Do we want to do two games? Let's just do the one. Um, let's go with the uh, um. Wes Andersonizing. Yeah, the West. Yeah, the Wes Andersonizing of modern or of films that have already come out. <laughs> here's the okay. Here's the premise for this game. We will each choose. A movie and uh, a movie. We choose our own movie. Each... Or we're choosing. Like... We choose movies for other people. Oh, okay, awesome. Oh, oh we'll each choose a movie Ooh. for somebody else, and their job is to pitch it as a Wes Anderson movie. They explain how they would, how Wes Anderson uh, would direct that movie and that concept. So there's a lot of room for, uh, for. <laughs> For dark stuff. I think so, I'm for dark yeah, stuff dressed up. No, 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 no. Why don't you give one for I Spencer? Was okay, say, go for yeah. it. Let's go. I want to give Spencer one. I think um, I want to do a movie that we haven't talked about yet. Um, I got one. You do? Okay. okay. Well, yeah. Should I start with Kevin? Yeah, give one to Kevin. Oh, Kevin, have, <laughs> have you seen the movie Synecdoche, New York? No, I oh. haven't. Sorry. I've heard of it. haven't seen it. I really wanted to hear you go into that one. Um, <laughs> then I don't have one. Come back. No. Okay. <laughs> it, should be, it should be a popular movie, right? Something that's so people... popular, unfamiliar? No, I'm not saying oh, okay, that. Okay. Okay. I'm not you're, saying I'm this movie's unpopular. Like, like, I know where the door is. Uh, I, just, sure. I just meant, like, I'm trying First to think... and last guest ever. I'm trying to think myself of a movie that has enough widespread appeal that people will know it. Yeah. And also is mm. interesting. Would be, you know... Um, Oh, oh, uh, Beetlejuice. Oh my god, Beetlejuice. I want you to do... Wes, <laughs> Beetlejuice. Wes Anderson's Wes Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, oh, would there... Okay, so... There Wes, is going to be, like, a sequel coming out. Stop that, Tim Burton. I, I'm, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to... Tim Burton, for real, though, in terms of auteurs, and we, like, we've all, almost exclusively talked about... Kind of unintentionally, almost exclusively talked about auteurs in this podcast. Tim Burton is at the top of my prayer list for auteurs because he's <laughs> continuously screwing it up. <laughs> He's never... Okay, so Beetlejuice by Wes Anderson. It would be... Um, so Beetlejuice, so... D, okay, the good thing is that there's already a really precocious, uh, douchey character who writes... Like, teenage character who writes in a diary a lot. <laughs> um, whoa, oh my gosh. Winona Ryder. So Winona, it would be much more focused on the relationship between Winona Ryder and her parents. Um, and it would be all about her, like, diary entries. And Beetlejuice... Would uh, he would appear, but he would be like there to like lead her. Um, he wouldn't be like an antagonist. It would be Beetlejuice. He would. It would be a lot of them like frolicking through. Um, does it take place in New England? I feel like Beetlejuice is in New don't England. Don't forget Alec Baldwin and. Oh uh, Lord! Forget. The, uh, Are we allowed to change casting? Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so you so can change the whole plot. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm doing it. I'm whole changing plot, the plot. Same, same so, characters. Though. Okay, Beetlejuice by Wes Anderson. Uh, Okay, so take two. F. Murray Abraham will play <laughs> Beetlejuice. I was hoping you were going to say um, Winona Ryder's character. No, and <laughs> Abraham <laughs> plays a Winona little girl writing. <laughs> no, 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 that. So, <laughs> so Tilda Swinton would play the the um. She she's only been in Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest, but Tilda Swinton would play the the Winona Ryder character, and she'd be in young like Tilda Swinton at she's in her fifties. Tilda Swinton ages down. Uh, <laughs> She's like in a lot of like has her face like pulled back and is in like they're shooting it like Hobbit style to make her look shorter than all the other characters. And um, it's actually like it's a, yeah, exactly it's a really touching story about one uh, young lady's relationship. Like she comes to understand important lessons about life, love, 
and the afterlife. <laughs> uh, uh, and Beetlejuice is like and the her, pain of death. And the pain of death. And Beetlejuice, it's like a whole father-daughter, um, even though he tries to marry her. That still is kept. And he tries to marry her at the end. But it is in the same way that Zero and Monsieur uh, Gustave is like a dad-son relationship. It's a very father-daughter dynamic. Um, and it's just mostly just long shots of them frolicking F. Murray Abraham in the striped suit and uh, the crazy Beetlejuice makeup. All, the Beetlejuice makeup is basically the same. Um, but Tilda Swinton and F. Murray Abraham frolicking through like a really saturated field of like daisies. What's the color palette? The color palette is the Beetlejuice stripes are the same. Five, the color five, five colors. Oh my god! Okay, the color palette is. You have five colors: chartreuse, vermilion, puce, um, magenta, <laughs> and uh, chartreuse, vermilion, puce, magenta, um, and oh god, uh, taupe. <laughs> For the record, I only know what two of those are. I think As well, you should. I'm fairly sure most of those so, are just red. Are just <laughs> red. You. No, red. two of them are technically kind of just yellow or yellowish pink. I don't know. That's oh my, my that's my pitch. I don't know how quality that is. That's my pitch for Beetlejuice by Wes Anderson. And actually, there are no other actors in the whole thing there's there are other just, characters okay. there are other characters but they're always off scene they're interacting with they're all stop motion puppets they're all stop motion hey that's a good thing <laughs> beetle just uses them all stop motion puppets they're all either off scene or off sorry off screen or just stop motion is it puppets. like cow and chicken where you just get like their legs <laughs> i'm not familiar cow i don't even know what you're referencing chicken what a reference who i don't it's know what that cartoon is from like the 90s or like early 2000s. i've been stuck on this ever since i said it i think i lied i only know magenta i don't know taupe <laughs> taupe is beige vermilion okay, yeah. is red then i'm off puce I, I don't know what it is <laughs> And chartreuse, I kind of don't know. What that is. <laughs> chartreuse is red as well. No, it's not. Is Look it, it up. No. Spencer just chose the like fanciest sounding. I don't even know. But I, they're also I no. can try to look up chartreuse. I don't know how to spell chartreuse. I think it's just the C-A. French way. Chartreuse, <laughs> the French way. Thanks it's French. French. It's French for um, Mizelzen. Okay, I got I got one for Sam because oh. I know you're a fan of this director. Chartreuse is a liquor. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> Chartreuse is the color of. Listen, it's listen. The color of Chartreuse is, the is color. also a liquor. It's yellow. It's a. Yellow. It's like a yellowish okay. green, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, so I was right. It's West Anderson uh, style color. We've solved sure. the mystery of what Chartreuse looks like. Um, follow along on the internet at home to. Okay, so for Sam, I I would like to hear Sam give a Wes Andersonized pitch of Looper. Looper, oh. oh! Also, one of my favorite movies. I freaking love Looper. <laughs> here's the here's the thing that's why this is so fitting. Ryan Johnson is already so Wes Anderson. Yeah, there's a lot you of know, like and, and the, the Brothers Bloom. I don't know if any of you have seen yes, that. Yes, that movie. I is thought it was a Wes Anderson movie so for the longest Anderson. time. I thought it was a Wes Anderson um, movie for the longest time. Okay, so time. Looper. The, the basic premise being uh, hitmen hit, hit in the future uh, getting all their money and, and earning their payday and, and stuff. They, they mm-hmm. kill people by sending them back to the past where they right. off them. Right. Um, and then we have the main character played uh, duly by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. And uh, Bill Murray. Bruce uh, Willis. Bill, Bruce Willis. I don't know. But I think he would be played I'm, by I'm Bill thinking, Murray. The, I'm thinking yeah. ahead on this already. Yeah. Um, so Bruce Willis being the older uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I would I would have to cast. Uh, this might be cliche, and I apologize, but Jason Schwartzman and uh, Bill Murray as as That's those the, characters, yeah. and 
and and it it becomes it's the quickest way to turn any movie into a Wes Anderson <laughs> film. Yes, Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. Jason it's, Schwartzman being the younger version, of course, <laughs> or would it be or, or the opposite? Or, um, I think it would have to be uh, less of an action movie mm-hmm. uh, and more of of just this kind of hero's journey uh, <laughs> with <laughs> Jason Schwartzman. He has to come out on top somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spoilers on Looper, I mean, at the end, I mean, Bruce Willis dies because Joseph Gordon-Levitt kills himself in, like, he kills, they're the same person, so the younger person dies, the older person has to die. Right. Is that what happens at the end of... Definitely uh, not. Definitely not? (laughs) Definitely not. By the way, what's the title? Would you still call it Looper? I think this would have to be renamed, it has to be a The... An adjective, and then Looper, uh, as as Wes Anderson movies are, are right. wont to do. Hmm. Um, the eclectic Looper. The eclectic. No, that's 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 too in your face. <laughs> that's too much. I would have to say, precocious has already been used, and that's yeah. also too in your face. Something subtle. Something, Something Wes Anderson subtle. How about? Um, don't help him, Kevin. Jason Schwartzman and the Looper Kid. Jason <laughs> Schwartzman and the Looper Kid. Okay, I'm fine with that. I'd say the Curious Looper. The Curious, curious Looper. Looper. <laughs> curious is that's perfect. It's got to be that's the one. The, cur- the Curious Looper. <laughs> I have I have one for you, Kevin. Mm. I have I have one. Uh, can you make a Wes Anderson version of Seven? Oh. oh God. Um. I haven't seen Seven all the way through. Oh no! I've seen most. In the of, box? I've seen, I've seen a lot box? of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing, and so I feel like I would not be able to do it. Okay, justice. Silence of the Lambs. Okay, <laughs> okay. Wes so Anderson version of Silence of the Lambs. Prime Wes Anderson material <laughs> right really there. Is. Is Silence of I the Lambs. I think the darkest films um, are actually the most prime Wes Anderson. They really films. They really are. Uh, well, there would definitely be. Um, I mean, in the spirit of the random spurt of violence in Grand Budapest where they're making the prison break there would have to be one part like halfway through the movie where um, Willem Dafoe does something awful yeah. <laughs> yeah. who is, who is uh, Hannibal Lecter? okay let's 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 cast um, Hannibal Lecter um, I would like to see Hannibal Lecter played mm, see my tendency since it's Wes Anderson is just to go with Bill Murray um <laughs> Don't who be would predictable. Be, I know. I don't want to be. I don't want to be too oh, predictable. I know who. Um, I know who. Who? Harvey Keitel. He's just recently gotten. I do into like the, Harvey Keitel. He's just recently been in um, two Wes Anderson films. He's kind of being hooked into the into true. the group. He that's was in true. Moonrise Kingdom. You know what? Instead, I'm going to go with um, God. What's the actor's name? Bob Balaban. Is that it? He's the guy who plays the yeah, narrator. Yeah, 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 he yeah. plays the narrator in Moonrise Kingdom. The cartographer. The cartographer who kind of narrates okay. the story. And um, he's one of the hotel concierges in the uh, Society of the Cross Keys. Oh, yes, um, yes. Bob Balaban. Yes. Um, he would be dressed. Oh, I love Bob Balaban. He would be dressed exactly like he's dressed in Moonrise Kingdom, with like the little sailor beanie and whatnot, <laughs> and the the fishing suit and everything. Same attire. In the same attire. Same color palette too. 
as Hannibal Lecter. But as Hannibal Lecter. Um, and there would be a moment, a random burst of violence where he springs forward and eats someone's face right off of their head. That's it would be mind. very graphic. Um, but but very, what's like, the, it's, um, pu- it's a puppet <laughs> face. It's, not every one of these has to be puppeteered. There um, are puppets and, and stop motion in every Wes Anderson film or a lot of them. Okay, it would be puppets, but not the type and of And what music is playing while this happens? That's what yeah. I want to know, too. It would be puppets, but not like the typical ones that we've seen so far, but like Muppet-style puppets <laughs> with actual puppeteers. Like, is there like a Muppet like, blood sacks in there's the a, face? There's a Muppet Bob Balaban portraying oh, Mr. Mr. Hannibal. Lecter, please don't eat my face off. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do it, do it again. Do it again. No, I don't take requests. <laughs> oh... <laughs> Tanner's doing Muppet arms while he does that. <laughs> can you um wait, can you what does he say? Oh god, what is what is what what are, what are the Hannibal Lecter? Oh, it's like, what did Mig say to you, Clarice? <laughs> <laughs> I ate his liver with a side of fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Wow. So, Alright. Um, so Puppet Bob Balaban <laughs> um, plays Hannibal Lecter. Muppet um, Puppet Bob Balaban. Muppet Puppet, Muppet, Puppet Bob um, Balaban is Hannibal Lecter. Clarice, Clarice is played by Miss Piggy. Um, <laughs> in just this interlude, okay, in this just isn't this a Wes Anderson movie. This is the next Muppet <laughs> this movie. Is the Muppet, Muppet's Muppet movie. Is this, this is Wes Anderson does the Muppets doing I think Hannibal. Wes Anderson could do a really good job with the Muppets movie. I, think, I do I like the Muppets. That would be the most pretentious thing. I would have to <laughs> set myself on fire if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the most, it's like the next Muppet movie will be directed by Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, starring Ricky Gervais. Uh, starring Ricky Gervais. Um, yes. Wait, wait. wait. Um, oh, that'd be dark. Jason, don't let that happen. Jason America, Cena. please don't let that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Our plea. A moment of silence yes. for if this happens. Hmm. The name of the name <laughs> the name of the, the imagining of this film would be uh, the life cannibalistic with Bob Balaban. <laughs> with Bob Balaban? With Bob as, Balaban. Is it Bob Balaban as Hannibal Lecter? Yeah. With Hannibal Lecter. There's like with, some okay, anaphora poetry, like Bob Balaban as Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I don't know if that's so anaphora. That's, that's my opinion. So someone come up with a movie for Tanner to close this out. Need, I need a movie. Okay, I Benjamin want... Button. I've never seen it. Uh, you need to. I actually wanted us to watch Benjamin Button for a long time because I love that movie. Um, maybe next week. Maybe next week. How about? Um, oh goodness, what's a movie that's uh, that's like very realistic? Like what's a movie that prides itself on veracity? Like the um, True to Life. Oh my gosh. Okay, never mind. Actually, forget that. Veracity's not veracity. The right word. Um, how about? American Psycho. <laughs> oh my god. We actually just talked. We, we were talking about I want to do American Psycho next, extre- to be honest. Extremely violent films, or like very dark films, kind of Fit are the best for making Wes Anderson films. Um, well, you have a challenge here that like they're already doing a. Um, American Psycho was already playing without like not taking violence very seriously. <laughs> I think. Um, I, I guess it's also cliche to say Jason Schwartzman would be. The, um, He'd be an amazing. Oh, don't be predictable, Jason, okay. can you do a Jason Schwartzman? I don't actually know. It. Oh, it's Pat- gonna be Owen Wilson as. Can you do? There we go. Oh, that's perfect. Owen Wilson as uh, what's his Patrick name? Bateman. Patrick Bateman. And can you do uh, Owen Wilson saying, "I just want to fit in"? <laughs> 
I, I just want to fit in. You know, <laughs> that's I don't. Almost I don't, that's, yeah, it's a little muppety. Can you do? It's hard to. I don't. What else do Owen Wilson? I only do voices I can do. Anyway, that's let, me, let me continue. Let me continue. That's a tautologous so, Unlike the, the actors on Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's not true. <laughs> Seth MacFarlane is a true artist. That's not true. He's an artist. Brought to you by <laughs> Seth MacFarlane. Fox. <laughs> anyway, so um, in this Wes Andersonized version of American Psycho, the dance portions where he's you know he's about to axe that one guy, yeah. um, and he does a little dance thing. Those would suddenly turn into like spotlight, like dance. <laughs> Ball- yeah. Wait, I long should- dance like number scenes, yeah. and you have to have like a camera shot of of just the weapon, from like a, on a table, yeah. like by and itself. It's from above, like the entire right. dance number is from above as well, and all okay, the tiles nice. on the floor like light up, like as his like steps in, move. In Billy Jean with the steps. Nice. You know, whatever. Um, how long does it last? Fifteen. That definitely lasts like 15, twenty minutes. 20 minutes. <laughs> it, is, it is a quarter, the a quarter of the film. Actually, that is actually one eighth of the film. It's a very, very long film. It's a very long <laughs> one film. This is his longest film. What He's are, never tried anything. What are we like working this. with color palette wise? Color-wise, there there's white. Okay. There's cream. Okay. There's beige. Okay. There is um, off-white. Off Bone. White. <laughs> Egg hey, shell. Eggshell. Eggshell. Egg Porcelain. And, and and there is also a very very bright. Um, it's got to be a very bright color. Something. Oh, it's like forest or green or something yeah. ridiculous. Something okay. that doesn't fit at all. With the rest of the movie, okay. Because I don't want to go with red. Because no, no, red you, is the obvious. Basically, answer. all Lots the colors you said were red, Spencer. That is true. It's green Blood is the color is of the m- color of money but in gr- this movie. Ooh. That's true. Oh, oh, I like that. Compelling. Kevin is like bulging his eyeballs and moving his eyebrows up and down as he says, "Ooh, all the <laughs> love the color of money." All the, all the uh, apt impression. All know, the graphics. You. All the graphic sex scenes in America. American Psycho, this version with Wes Anderson, are twice as long and twice as graphic. And the, and the actors are twice as old. Twice as old. <laughs> and it's, and never, it's never like they're trying to portray old... It's just old and actresses. And it's, it's tilt... Sh- and they're shot from a distance, and it's tilt shift uh, shot with like their little uh, stop animation puppets. That's gross. It's like <laughs> the worst part of that, That's for like- our <laughs> listeners at home, were the hand motions that went along yeah, with it. Yeah, there were lots of... Uh, <laughs> it's like hinging motions. If only like, you could see. Yeah, I, it looks like suspiciously like Tanner has dolls that he plays with doing this. Have I, y'all seen Team America? Team America World perfect. Police is yes. what I'm thinking of. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, the name of the yeah, film. What's the title? Uh, it's American Psycho. So it'd be um, the Midnight. The, no, I, no, I was gonna say. <laughs> um. So, like the psychotic menagerie, something like oh. that. The psychotic menagerie of Patrick oh. Bateman yes. and his exceptional accomplices. <laughs> yes. That was a that that was was a That's a Did dud. you ever retitle your Beetlejuice? No, I just called it Beetlejuice. <laughs> we've got we've got the Curious Looper, the okay. Life Cannibalistic, and, and the, the Psychotic Menagerie of Patrick Bateman. Yeah. So what is Beetlejuice retitled? The Afterlife Aquatic. (laughs) (laughs) We can't do that. Can't I? You cannot. Can all of ours just be like the life something? Like yours would be the life psychotic. The life psychotic. The life psychotic. The life cannibalistic. Cannibalistic. The life looper would not make any sense. (laughs) The life chronologic. That's the best time word I can think of. And it's probably not even a word. Um, Oh, I can't. The life chirotic. 
Okay. There it is. Okay. Kairos. It's a, it's a Greek oh, word. He, there oh. it is. I'm being the <laughs> where I'm y'all, the real <laughs> someone who is educated. The real ironic is not any sort of declension of that word. The real reason that Sam I mean, ain't never coming back is because I'm threatened. I'm threatened. My position is being threatened in this podcast. My hierarchy um, as the one who knows the most foreign words is being threatened. So one up him. I can't. Um, Here, if it makes you feel better, I'll probably oh. get I'll probably get kicked out of sem- seminary for saying chirotic because I know declension of. Kairos. I've got it. The life quixotic is. Oh, oh. there it is. There it is. Mm. Hair flip. Hair Oops, flip. Yeah. Uh, it comes from the the uh, quixotic is a. It, oh, Let's I want the etymology. <laughs> Quix- no, quixotic comes from it's like it, it's spelled it's like from Don Quixote. It means like it's something in the style of Don Quixote. Quixotic. Q U I X. Fit with your movie? Yeah. Or? Beetlejuice is quixotic. If Beetlejuice He's is not at windmills, the new age Don Quixote. Don Quixote. I don't know who it is. Exactly. <laughs> um, that'd be a great. Um, have you ever seen the website Lol My Thesis? No. It's just like crazy. <laughs> okay, it's just like it's it's quotes from people's theses, and they're just theses, theses. 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 Beetlejuice is nothing. So, uh, Wes Anderson, if you're listening and you want to take any of these pitches as your next movie, pay we'll accept, us. We'll accept. We'll accept. Uh, Sponsor them. Yeah, story. Uh, story writer credits. We will. We'll accept payment also in the yeah. form of props from any of your movies mm. yes. and or music that we can use from all your movies. I'd yeah, like to be able to use music from your movies in our podcast. I know. We had to yeah. um, vocalize parts of the yodeling ourselves because we're afraid of. Oh, I'm not even going to try this time. <laughs> you know, not I can't yell. You were giving him praise. And we were talking about Toy Story two or, earlier. That's also or, one of the or, best or, parts. Earlier, earlier, We were earlier. <laughs> we were talking about. <laughs> That's the best part of Toy Story two is Jesse the Yodeling Cowgirl. That's all I've got to say. Jesse the Yodeling Cowgirl from I'm the glad, Rolling Oats. Well, it certainly wasn't Big Al from Al's Toy Boat. Ah, I'll tell I you that love, much. I, I, I love how we're ending on a very topical <laughs> point <laughs> of <laughs> Toy Story. What was this about? What we Toy Story was our original tangent. Yes. I'm For, aware. The original footnotes. <laughs> not what the can, we, can we publish a podcast with footnotes? <laughs> um, <laughs> We, yes. Sure. For tangent one, pause now and click <laughs> at the bottom. For real, that's how. If you've ever tried to well, listen back to, to the discussion that we said they were going to do, okay, there are two books that <laughs> I've tried one. to read in audio format that are like heavily use footnotes. One is, um, this is a Infinite Jest. <laughs> one is Infinite Jest. The other one is the Bartimaeus trilogy, which is a young adult fantasy novel. And no one has successfully ever verbally done footnotes for me in an audiobook. And I'm an audiobook connoisseur. I know everything. <laughs> is that is is that kind of like saying you're a connoisseur of boxed wine? It's very much like how. First of all, how dare <laughs> you? He really does. Can already we tell. Can bring him back. You're one of those people who thinks that back, if you though. didn't, if you listen to it, it doesn't count as reading. I'm a faster reader than I am a listener, but sometimes I like, I like. An, you can't an, drive and read at the same time. You can. Um, sometimes <laughs> you can. With your third eye. <laughs> Sometimes I like to have an, a Hollywood actor narrate a book. Sometimes I like to have... Or an old British man narrate oh your Game of Thrones Oh my sweet books. Lord Jesus. The guy who narrates the Game of Thrones is the worst. <laughs> he's 90. I've listened. He's he's 90 and he has to do the voices. Would you rather of... Diane Reem was narrating those books? No. I'd rather... Well, Diane Reem is never pretending like she's doing...
doing the voice of a 14-year-old girl in Game of Thrones. And Roy Detrice, Roy Detrice, whose only film credit I'm familiar with is Leopold Mozart in Amadeus. Only thing I've seen him in. I'm pretty. I'm, first of all, how this has quickly not... become the most pretentious oh my chapter. God. No, <laughs> there will be. Roy Detrice needs to, to sit down. I take all the blame. <laughs> Roy Detrice needs to take a seat. And that's why he has to come back. So because he's injected a level of pretentiousness that we have not yet achieved. Uh, <laughs> new levels of retention. Unrelatable. Uh. <laughs> we should have just called this podcast unrelatable. <laughs> it's been. It was turned off an hour ago. <laughs> if you've made it to the end of this podcast like i said earlier all of my treasure is buried in the the rib cage of tanner robbins corpse for Whoa. future generations that's where all my treasure my um oh brother or arthur Elstad, treasure Tre- treasure <laughs> um thanks for listening there's a, a facebook page that you can go and like um please do it uh, rate us, please rate us on For iTunes. Pete's sake, rate us you can on iTunes. On SoundCloud, um, if you have if you have negative things to say, it was my fault. Yes, obviously, please direct those inquiry. Any any negative comments? Samuel Jackson Hayes the fourth on there Facebook. The fourth is Roman numeral IV. Ooh. Uh, if you've made it this far, congratulations, <laughs> you've reached the end. We did it. Marathon. It's a this this podcast is a marathon, not a sprint. And the end.